Football is back and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. They've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, numbers of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. If you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online betting sport company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, and please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to Glad Tidings, the athletic podcast all about Everton Football Club. I'm Greg O'Keefe, and as ever, I'm joined by my colleague and fellow Everton writer for The Athletic, Paddy Boyland. And before I ask how you are, I actually know you are in the world's hottest room at the moment, doing some sort of extreme fad diet to lose a stone in half an hour. That would be ideal, if it was possible. That's the first thing to say. But um, no, I've got, I've got a newfound respect for particularly Premier League footballers, but all footballers, I guess, that have been playing the sport at a high intensity during this period. It's obviously kind of a bit of a heat wave at the moment over in the UK. And I'm I'm currently top floor of the house with these kind of Velux windows that just kind of <laughs> radiate heat. So it's it's like it it's basically like being in a sauna without having the benefits of actually being in the sauna. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, that's a, I think that's what Carlo Ancelotti's been doing by the looks of it. He seems to have lost about four stone in lockdown. <laughs> He's looking well. Yeah, he is. He is to be fair. Well, on this week's episode, we'll look back on last night's win over Norwich City. Alex Iwobi's progress on the pitch and we'll also touch on a very strange return to football for the Blues at the Merseyside Derby last weekend. We'll also discuss Morgan Schneiderlin's exit and the news today that Umar Nias and Kuko Martina have been released. But before we get into all that, let me remind you that you can sign up to The Athletic and receive a 40% discount on a year-long subscription today just in time for Everton's continued return to Premier League action. And with that, you'll, of course, be able to enjoy the best football writing anywhere, ad-free podcasts like this one, and all that for less than £3 a month. So, Norwich Sempad, um on the BBC, in the, uh, the unusual <laughs> time of 6 o'clock on a Wednesday. Very surreal to watch Premier League yep. football at that time. A game of, like, contrasting halves, really. The first, we, we were watching, messaging one another, and it wasn't very complimentary, was it? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It, maybe it didn't bear repeating. Um, it was it, it was the kind of performance I expected in parts from a side that had gone against Liverpool, put in such a decent shift, particularly in terms of the intensity, the work off the ball, sitting in the banks of four and, and denying Liverpool, a very good Liverpool side space. My big concern about this game was that you were asking more or less the same group of players to go again. And not only had Norwich had a couple of extra days in which to recover, they played on Friday and Everton played on Sunday. But Everton had the travel elements. They had to fly down to to Norfolk, we believe, on the day of the game. Sometimes you would go the day before, but obviously the the situation with COVID means that the kind of... the decision is made for you as it is. Yeah. So some less than optimal circumstances for an away side, particularly an away side that is depleted and that had just played Liverpool um, a couple of days earlier. 
it was sluggish. It really was sluggish to start. And I think particularly in midfield, we weren't really able to pass through Norwich. We weren't able to get any kind of decent grip in possession and a lot of sloppy giveaways that effectively invited the bottom side in the table onto us and, and, yeah. and gave them a, a foothold in the game. But as you say, it, it's a massive cliche, but it was a game of two halves. Uh, I thought what happened at halftime obviously went on to be pivotal and Everton came out and effectively it, <laughs> it was the same group of players, more or less, bar, bar, bar one change. But it was a sea change in terms of the, the level of the performance. I thought it was a all told a, a pretty good 45 from Everton, the second 45. And in the end, despite being second best in the first half without really surrendering many chances, I thought they were full value for the 1-0 win. win and um, that makes it a good, a, a very good start to the restart to the season, doesn't it? Because I think if any, if any Everton had been asked um, or offered, I should say, four points from the opening six in these circumstances then I think they would have taken that so yeah I'm I'm pleased I think it I think it's it's nice to be able to speak in such positive terms about this Everton side and particularly the manager I think you're absolutely right given given the injury situation at the Finch Farm as well to come back and get four points and for, from the first two games and also to see the continuing sort of evidence that Carlo Ancelotti's got that real masterful touch to switch tactics yeah. when he needs to there's no panic there's just a a cool assessment of what's going wrong and the ability to change it. It bodes really well. Alex Iwobi was a key part of that change, wasn't he? I spoke to him last Friday before the derby. Perhaps didn't have his um, most impactful game in the derby, although it later transpired he was playing very much to a game plan. But he really, again, when you and I were discussing the game last night afterwards, we, we both fixed on the difference he made and, and his changing role made in the second half, didn't we? Yeah, and I think it was quite interesting. Obviously, we were both covering the game to one extent or another. I'd, I'd recommend people check out Greg's piece so, because there's lots of interesting stuff about what changed after the break. Um, the changes that were made at half-time that led to the, the marked improvement in performance. But I think one of, the, one of the things that I think has maybe flown slightly under the radar is the extent to which Alex Awobi has had to compromise at Everton so far in his time. He's obviously not developed any real momentum up to now, partly because of injuries, the change mm. in manager, stuff like that. But I think if you if, if you sat down with Awobi and said, what's your best position? And I think he hinted this in, in your interview with him. He's a, he's a number 10. He's, a, he's somebody that plays in between the lines. Or in four four two where you don't have a number 10. He's probably best suited to that role on the left, where he comes inside onto his right foot and is allowed yeah. to to almost be a be a playmaker drifting in. He's not playing that role at the moment. He's playing on the right and I don't think it, it actually massively suits his skill set. It doesn't certainly it doesn't maximise what um what he's good at. Um he's he's obviously got good technique, he's been developed in the Arsenal way, he's, he uses the ball well, he finds space, he finds his teammates in possession more often than not crisp, short, sharp passing. But the thing I really like about him and statistics bear this out his passing is expansive and he, he also looks to play the ball forwards and I think that's really important in this current Everton side. Like like most of the others, he showed some good signs in the first half but I don't think he, Everton really got him into the game. They weren't able to break through Norwich's press, the, the high press. But after, after the break, it, it was a completely different Awobi and it was a completely different Everton. And I tweeted after the game 
for Man of the Match suggestions from uh, people that follow me on Twitter. And I'd say it was about half and half split between Iwobi and Michael Keane. Michael Keane, obviously the goal scorer, part of another clean sheet. But I think Iwobi should be, rightly, should be right up there too because he contributed to, to getting Everton on the front foot. And effectively what they did, he was playing wide on the right against Liverpool and he was basically just asked to track the runs of Milner. Uh, and Mane throughout the game and help out. He basically sat on top of Seamus Coleman and performed a defensive role, so he sacrificed his attacking instincts for the team. And while he took a fair bit of criticism for the for the performance against Liverpool, he did a good defensive job, actually. The role was different, and, and, and he started out wide on the right against Norwich, but he spent a lot of time in the second half coming in field to give the likes of Andre Gomez, Mason Holgate and Gilfie Sigurdsson in the second half, an option for the pass. And as he came inside, he started to knit things together. Everton looked more cohesive. And I think when Alex Awobi plays well, Everton tend to play well, just because he's a facilitator. He makes things happen and he's he's bright and he's lively. So maybe we haven't seen the, the best of him up to now. Maybe there's still more to come. I still think he needs to add goals. still think he needs to add more assists to his game. But I think this was definitely a step in the right direction and he was part of the reason why, a strong part of the reason really, why Everton produced their best football uh, after the break. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, still want to see more assists than goals from him, but you can say that about yeah. most of the midfield and uh, early days into the restart. It's promising. Um, just quickly touch on the derby. I know a lot of you will have will have seen and read a lot about that now, but we must... Uh, we just just must must reflect very briefly on what we feel from that. I again the, the piece that we that we end up writing from that was I was impressed how they stopped Liverpool. It's not the sum of our ambition by any means, you know, stopping Liverpool. You want to see Everton do much more than that in a derby. Ideally, go toe to toe and cause them problems, which we did at times. Arguably, could have taken well, could have taken all the points, but for a, an intervention by Joe Gomez's boot. But overall. I was quite. That wasn't bouncing with optimism, but uh, you know, <laughs> it could have been worse. <laughs> yeah, well, it absolutely could have been worse, and and we know that from from past experience, don't we? In, uh, yeah. in Merseyside derbies, what what I would say is that people make a lot about Everton's record in Merseyside derbies, and they should do to an extent because obviously they haven't won one since two thousand and ten, but it's quite rare since that spell in time that Liverpool have come to Everton and taken all three points. Everton, these t- these games tend to be cagey nil-nils or one-ones at Goodison. You'd like to see more wins in there, but it's it's rare that Liverpool actually come to Goodison in the modern era and win, certainly since um, the turn of the decade. I'll be honest, I went into this game quite pessimistic. I knew about Everton's injury issues. Um, I knew about the fact that, as Ancelotti had alluded to in his press conference before the game, they'd pulled back on arranging a friendly against another side, another club, before the restart. Um, Mainly because they were picking up so many injuries and they wanted to manage the situation and avoid risk. They obviously had that 65-minute game at Goodison, inter-squad game, but I... The, the fear for me was that they would go into this game undercooked and undercooked against the Liverpool side that can punish you anyway on the day if you're not 100%. <sighs> to be fair, how, how wrong I was because um, Everton competed for every ball. It was, it was a pragmatic approach from Ancelotti, still 4-4-2. 
but with subtle differences that made it very hard for Liverpool to to play through them. And if you think about it, really, there was a lot of attention on how much of the ball Liverpool had, but I'm struggling to really think back to a clear-cut chance that they created in the game across the 90 minutes. And actually, the, the thing I tweeted after the game was that I was actually a little bit disappointed that Everton didn't go on to win because you, you look at the, the intervention from Gomez that just diverted Davis's ball, Davis's shot, I should say, onto the post. Richarlison's opportunity where he should probably square for Alex Awobi for mm. what would have been a, a golden opportunity. I actually still think Richarlison should have done better with a shot anyway. It was pretty tame and, and straight at Allison. If you back yourself, just put your foot through the ball, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and then there were a few other bits and pieces. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin had a flick, Richarlison blazed over. So all of the best chances in the game were Everton's. And I think that is a testament. We, we've spoken about Ancelotti changing things up at half-time against Norwich. It's a testament to him that he was able to study the footage and find ways of nullifying this Liverpool side. Anthony Gordon obviously has to play a different role to the one he's used to, kind of um, shuttling across to, to, to block Alexander-Arnold's piercing runs from the right. On the whole, Everton did a very good job against Alexander-Arnold. Anthony Gordon deserves a lot of credit for that. On the other side, we've already said it won't be sat on, effectively sat on top of um, Seamus Coleman and stopped, stopped Milner and Marnay in their tracks there. Both of those two on the right did a very good defensive job. And then in midfield, I don't think that the midfield duo was particularly impressive against Norwich, it has to be said. But against Liverpool, they they did everything that could have been asked of them. Um, Hustling and harrying, chasing every ball. I thought Tom Davis grew into that Merseyside derby and ended up showing some really positive signs anyway. So we, we sit here with talking about a manager who's changed things up to get results, the pragmatism we've wanted. There's a bit of stability, two clean sheets. We've seen a, a central defensive partnership emerge uh, be- between Mason Holgate and Michael Keane, both of them playing very well at this moment in time. It's only early days, but playing very well. And it just seems like a lot of uh, there's a lot of positivity at the moment um, since since things got back up and running. And, and maybe the contrast with the, the, a bit of a, the bit of apathy that's set in um, with before the restart. So, I mean... Like like I said, if you'd offered Everton fans four points from six, I think they'd have been pretty happy with that. Harry's sponsors Glad Tidings, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. As a listener of this podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash glad tidings right now. That's harrys.com forward slash glad tidings. Pardon, you'll have to get your Harry's out in order to uh, get yourself a shave for the next time we get to Goodison. You know, we, these lockdown beards can't uh, can't be gracing the press room next time we get in there. <laughs> I was thinking, who's the character in The Hangover with the really long beard? <laughs> uh, basically, Alan. I'm going to... I'm going to come out, Alan. I'm going to come out of lockdown looking like Alan. Yeah. Um, oh, and I, I, I say that t- tongue-in-cheek because actually, I'm, as I mentioned on last week's show, I'm not particularly great at, at growing a beard. But um, yeah, it, 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 it feels like a long time since we've been to Goodison any, in any case. And, and maybe that's about to change soon with um, press passes um, being being on offer for, for the games to come. So it'll be nice to be back. Um, it feels like an age since we've been there um, obviously we'd love it to be with 
a full packed out Goodison. And I'll be honest, I can't wait for the day when we get that and it's done safely. When it is safe for everyone to go back to Goodison and the Gladys Street is singing and particularly singing Richarlison's name, getting behind Dominic Calvert-Lewin, the rest of the side. I think that that's something to really, really look forward to, even if it seems like a bit of a distant prospect now. Absolutely. Well, we asked you earlier on for your Twitter questions and um, there have been some really good ones. So we'll get straight into them now. Uh, Terry McAllister has got a question for, for me and Paddy. He says, do you think there's a chance that Leighton Baines could not take up the contract offer from Everton? Uh, as we were reported earlier this year, Leighton Baines, that Everton want him to stay. There's a feeling that he wants to stay, but yet the deal remains unsigned. Terry goes on, if he doesn't, what does the club do then? With, with the market as it is, uh, he suggests Hickey at Hearts. Would you move Delph there if Luca Dean gets injured? Would you buy someone else? Um, again, Pad, this one we've spoken about today off off air, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. uh, Carlo spoke about it last night. Um, you know, emphasising how much Everton love Leighton Baines and how much he loves Everton, and yet there has to be a degree of concern with the sort of. The clock ticking, if you like, really, on, on the, his current deal expires at the end of June and, and the extension not yet signed. Yeah, I think that's the thing for me. And this became apparent last week when Everton announced that he was still to, to sign the deal. You look at the amount of time that's passed since he was offered the new contract. The fact that he didn't sign straight away or kind of relatively soon afterwards means there is a degree of doubt over this and that's just reading between the lines rather than something that 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 is coming directly from the player or or the club Ancelotti said he was hopeful after the Norwich game um, and that of course everybody wants him to stay but it's not done and dusted which creates that doubt Um, I think it would be to answer the second part of of Terry's question I, I I think it would be a blow to lose him for a number of reasons first of all obviously he's he's immensely popular with the fans so uh, all supporters want to see him I believe sign a new deal but second he is important in terms of providing cover challenging Luca Dean as he has done so well this season uh, and providing that kind of experienced head in the dressing room so we only wrote a few weeks ago about, first of all, how he's topping the charts on kind of fitness apps for, for his, his workload and, ha- and how much he's running and the intensity with which he's doing it. But also we, we, we mentioned in our piece on the, the contract deferrals that he was kind of a, a key mover alongside the captain, Seamus Coleman, in in helping get that stuff over the line. So... I think he's he's an important figure on and off the pitch for Everton. Um, and it would also create a bit of a vacuum at left-back. You, you would have Luca Dean, and Luca Dean's obviously a good left-back for Everton Football Club. But you do need cover, so if, if Baines goes logically, Everton would need to bring somebody in. It's not like they, they still have Anthony Robinson on the books, for example, and Anthony Robinson could have came in and, and been, uh, could have come in and been second-choice left-back. It's not like... There's anybody in the under-23s at the moment that looks like the heir apparent to either Baines or Dean. I think they would have to find a solution from outside of the squad. So I think all we can say at this moment in time is, yes, there is an element of doubt, it seems, over Baines signing. Everton wants him to sign. The fans want him to sign. <laughs> I think even as a journalist, I want him to sign um, because I think it's the, be- the best thing for Everton Football Club. And we will keep on top of, of any further developments. Uh, he's obviously 
today. We're recording on Thursday the 25th. He's obviously today signed a, a very short-term extension to keep him at the club until the end of the, the season. I'm sure it'll be revisited soon in an attempt to get it over the line for next season too. Yeah, Michael Blakey is obviously of like mind with us. He just says, Leighton, I'm not ready, Leighton, please. And then that's a crying emoji. None of us are ready. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Sam Mason, more of an observation, but it is funny because I, I agree with him. It was it was surreal. Big Dunk holding up the substitute board to empty Carrow Road. Weirdest moment of the season so far. Um, Matthew, yeah, Matthew Barry's got a, an interesting one. You kind of added into the the Q and A. Uh, should just mention sometimes before get well not sometimes always before games, uh, occasionally during and then usually after. Paddy and I do live Q and As. If you haven't jumped in one yet, please do. Next game will be less than next Wednesday. That'll be Paddy. will be doing it. And we just talk about the team news, anything that happens during the game. Yeah. And uh, subscribers can just jump in there, ask questions, make observations, and it's it's a fun sort of update uh, and often um, games as the game goes on we can we can give you our take on that and you can share yours anyway Paddy did that yesterday with the news that Dan Mice had uh, tweeted Dan Mice sorry being the architect who delivered the Bramley Moor stadium project vision that we've all sort of fallen in love with uh, tweeted his upset that he, he feels that he's no longer involved in delivering that Matthew Barry asks Paddy can you try and clarify why Dan Mice is so upset did he believe or was he told he was going to continue with the build phase of the project? He's upset because he's not working on the scheme. And I think the clarification that's come over the last few days is that, first of all, yeah, he's not currently engaged in the in the, in the project. I don't think he's expected to be engaged in the project um, for the foreseeable future. And I think the, the important thing to say here is that he, he was what is called a... Um, it was, it was kind of a contract architect insofar as mm-hmm. he was he was invited to submit initial plans, um, initial designs for the stadium, and to deliver them to the football club. Now he's obviously done that that part of the um, the project, and his contract came up for effectively in order for him to remain as part of the the project, Everton would have had to um, renew his his deal. So there was a discussion about that. And if you look at Dan Meiser's past um, past history in um, in architecture and in working on stadium development, there are examples where he hasn't followed the project all the way through. So, for example, I think with with FC Cincinnati, if if I'm not mistaken, Dan designed the stadium. Um, he was the concept architect, designed those plans, but he didn't work on it all the way through. It was passed on to another architectural firm. That's what's happened here. We go into, we move from a concept phase to hopefully getting planning permission, which will be late summer, early autumn, we're led to believe. No change there. I don't think there's any change. I don't think there's any any worry that this completely derails the, the project because from what we're hearing, it does not at all. Um, but we, we move on to that new phase and it's, it's more of a technical phase where Everton have appointed pattern design to work with um, preferred constructors, Lango Rourke, on, on, the, um, on the development, effectively carrying out what Dan Mice, uh, Dan Mice's vision, what, what Dan Mice um, designed. And that's more technical. It's about kind of conforming to planning regulations. It's about specifics of UK-based practice uh, and making sure that they take into account all of the 
very UK specific heritage concerns and dealing mm. with those bodies. So I think Patton, you, you look at their their back catalogue as as I had to do yesterday. And while they've been working as consult- consultants for a while, they've now stepped up and taken and taken that role on as part of the next phase of the the, the program. And they've they've worked on the Etihad Stadium expansion with Manchester City, obviously very successful. They're currently engaged in delivering or helping to deliver, I should say, a couple of um, stadiums for the Qatar World Cup. And you, you go through the the the. Their CV and it, it it's really quite impressive. Their their back catalogue, things they've worked on. I think what everybody would have liked is for a cleaner divorce here, and we, we don't know whether we don't know whether Dan Mice was promised anything. I'm not I'm not entirely sure he was promised that he would carry the the, the program through. That's not what we've heard, and we we could not confirm that. But he's obviously got a sour taste in his mouth that he's not being asked to stay on. Um, and I think it's fair to say that nobody wanted this to be a very well. Certainly, Everton didn't want this to be a very public divorce. So um, the fact that the the laundry is kind of being aired in public, I think, um, is something that will will be looked back upon with regret on at least one side, maybe both. Um, I just think I and I kind of alluded to this in the Q and A yesterday. I, th- I think the key thing to stress, because everybody panics about this because of Everton's history with failed stadium moves, the key thing to stress again and again is that there is no indication that this news over Dan Mice is having an impact on the stadium itself and whether it gets built. Uh, the club are confident that uh, it will still be built. They've ploughed, I think it's close to £40 million already in even getting to the stage we're at now. And planning permission will hopefully be granted, although that's obviously nothing's ever a given in in late um, in late summer, early August, um, not early August, early, early autumn, I should say. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the headline news that the fact that Dan Mice is not working on it is 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 an additional point, and I'm sure that will disappoint some supporters. But I think it's a decision to effectively make sure that the technical part of this scheme goes as swimmingly as possible. And I don't think it's the case that this is kind of a unique scenario, that there are other examples across the board of the concept architect not seeing the project through. So hopefully that's answered the question to one degree. Yeah, Will of Australia has got a point really on uh, Moise Keane. Um, I think he's been a bit irked by the tone of his question. He says, do you think that Moise Keane is getting his deserved or should people just shut up and let him play? I think, you know, everyone got criticism or does get criticism all the time on Twitter, every Everton player. And, yeah. um, you know, his cameo yesterday probably did get a few snarky comments, possibly not the best. Uh, he got less than a minute in the derby. So I think we need to see him start games and um, we can then form an opinion whether or not he's progressed in lockdown. Um, an interesting one here from uh, Andy Riddler. Do you think we should roll with Michael Keane at the back, even when Mina returns, or put Mina straight back in? Yeah, I'm. I'm a firm believer in if you've played well, you deserve to keep your shirt. I think. I think mm. football has to be a meritocracy, and the squad needs to know that if you're an individual player and you perform game after game, then that is enough to to gain the trust of the manager and to keep your shirt. I. I, I don't really understand why. Even though Yerry Mina is obviously a good player and started the season very well with Everton, I don't really understand why you would look to break up a partnership that kept a clean sheet against Liverpool, kept a clean sheet against Norwich, so that's two in two. 
Um, only Everton's second clean sheet away from home this season in the league, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken. Um, I just I, I don't see why you would want to break that up or risk things coming apart in that way. So, so yeah, for me, Michael Keane continues. It's obviously been a good restart for him and I think he's been one of the big winners f- from the restart of the season Michael Keane and probably Alex Awobi um, are the big winners and so far as they've, they've advanced their claims for a start the most I think Awobi if, if there's an option between him and Bernard I think he's more likely to get the nod now if they if it's on the left on the right he's an option as well and then Michael Keane as I've already said is, has done very well alongside Mason Holgate and there's the signs of a, a quite a, a burgeoning partnership there. So all things considered for Michael Keane, he scores a goal against Norwich, a couple of clean sheets. I believe he his partner gave birth the other day as well. So he's he's a, he's a dad as well for the um for the first time. So um a, a good week all in all for him. Uh, and he's advanced his claims as I say. So I I think he should continue. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I think he's he's done more than enough to keep his place. Uh, there have been times I must admit I've, I've looked at Michael Keane and I thought you know the player that we thought we were getting from Burnley he's never consistently be, been able to to become you know England international and someone who'd really become like a Jack Elker-esque centrepiece of that of that defence. Yeah. Um, but last couple of games I, I really see and he's such a confidence player isn't he? He's spoken very bravely about in the struggles he's had with kind of self belief and. Um, and, and, and mental health really um, and we know professional athletes are far from immune to such things like you know, they're human beings and uh, he's a good guy and I'm glad to see him thriving and I hope that he can really certainly doesn't deserve to whether me and his fit or not he doesn't deserve to lose his place Agreed. and uh, maybe maybe he gets uh, he gets an extended run well in terms of running the other way I out of Goodison Park. We've got uh, sort of a triple whammy, really. Um, let's start with Morgan Schneiderlin because his exit for Southern France and, and a return to his homeland going to Nice was confirmed earlier this week. Um, you know, we speak about a player not becoming the player you hoped for. That was very much the case with Schneiderlin. You know, I remember when he signed in the January under Cumin, and for a while it looked like the player that United had signed from Southampton. Um, and it just didn't last, did it? No, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, he wasn't able for a sustained period of time to to really put his Southampton form and translate it into to Everton performances. I suppose he, he didn't really do that at Manchester United either. He, he he wasn't the player that Southampton fans had seen, that kind of combative, all-action midfielder that was also good in possession. The, he, he kind of was an all-round package, and... We we saw glimpses first kind of six months under Cumin. There was a little bit of a renaissance every now and then under Silva, um, and obviously he's, he, he was he was quite good in, in some of Duncan's games in charge as well. But I look at this; he's he's now I think he's, what is he now thirty years of age. He obviously wanted to go back to France instead of playing what would have been a bit part role at best with Everton. Only had a year left on his deal, so Everton were kind of looking to cash him in looking to get money off the wage bill and certainly he was a high earner and I think that's the point to make with all of this you aggregate the money Everton will save from getting rid of Schneidlin, Martina, Nias who was another high earner, um, Luke Garbutt who was paid a decent wage 
uh, and numerous others at different levels of the club, and all of a sudden you start to realise that Everton are saving millions of pounds every every month, um, potentially. So um, that that's why it makes a lot of sense. Not always been easy to get fees for for some of these players. I think there is a small fee for Schneiderlin, but it's not going to be anything that sets the world alight. The main thing is to get the wages off the book as well. You've got you've got to look at it almost as a as a kind of joint thing, wages plus um, plus transfer fee. So Everton will be better off. Indeed, and I think he was on a very significant wage as well. Was Morgan Schneiderlin, um, someone else who certainly didn't fulfil the promise, albeit not quite as defined promise, uh, because he was basically plucked out of nowhere. Unless you're a ardent follower of Russian football. Um, you know, it's had such a storied, relatively brief but storied Everton career from not getting a locker under Koeman to then outlasting Koeman scoring in one of his last games and, uh, you know, sort of sticking a proverbial two fingers up to, to the Dutchman. And he's coming and he's scored goals now and again. He's gone on loan twice. He's scored against Liverpool while he's been at Hull and... Uh, on loan and uh, always played with a smile on his face but let's be serious as well in terms of a lot of money was spent on him and you talk about mistakes made in recruitment he never looked like a, a striker who's going to sco- consistently score goals for Everton did he a lot of people have actually said he never looked like a footballer big, a bit cruel perhaps <laughs> but um, not a surprise to see him be, be let go is it no he, he never looked like a top level footballer let let's put it that way. He uh, yeah. he's got some quite defined strengths, but he he's not the best technical footballer. He he doesn't look well suited to playing in any system really, beyond kind of semi organised chaos. Um, and I guess that's why he thrived towards the end of um Koeman's tenure because it didn't really. I, well, I couldn't fathom what Everton were trying to do in certain games. So yeah, I don't I don't think any tears will be shed over this. Um, the story is an interesting one, of course, um, from him not having a, a locker under Koeman, obviously a bit unfair on the lad, to um, surviving Koeman, surviving successive managers. I just think if you look at the transfer fee, and I can't remember the year he was born. Uh, born? It was 1986. I'm going incredulous in this heat. <laughs> um, I can't remember the, the year he was bought in. But we're looking at a transfer fee of around fourteen million pounds, all told. Yeah, it's twenty sixteen. It was plus wages for four years uh, to to an extent, uh, an awful lot of money because he 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 was paid a fair sum, we believe, yep. by Everton. So a cumulative total that would be pretty eye watering, I would imagine. Um, so it it's not being money well spent. It's been symptomatic of the the approach in the transfer market over the last five six years, you would say. And um, while he was a trier and he scored some important goals, it must be said, um, I don't think he was ever an Everton player really in terms of quality. I doubt he's even really a Premier League player in terms of his, his footballing, his technical ability. So hopefully he gets a move, hopefully he goes on to do good things um, somewhere else, either in an, another foreign top flight league or lower down in, in England. Uh, he leaves with kind of best wishes, but... Um, Am I concerned that Everton have lost out here? I'm not really. Yeah, I would I would share that. And and then from one who's kind of, you know, albeit formed a little bit of a cult cult, cult status might be putting it kindly, but he's certainly a you know affectionate niche in Everton fans in the ass to someone who's just embodied a shrug of the shoulders, I have to say, 
in Cuco Martina. Most notably, I remember him for, for Sam Allardyce, consistently calling him Coco, which Coco. is just not the only name of his own players that he failed to grasp uh, while he was shudderingly the Everton manager. But Cuco Martina also moves on to Pastish New. Kuman signing just never, never atrocious, but never looked like he should be playing for Everton Football Club. No, exactly the same as Azumar Nias, albeit not quite on the um, f- for the sum that Nias joined for. Um, it's funny that you talk about Allardyce there. I remember being <laughs> sat directly in front of Sam in a press conference. But he didn't and see he called him. Well, <laughs> oh, you were sorry. You were, he was doing the press conference, right? Yeah, he. So I was. I was sat watching him doing doing the press conference, um, and I remember him calling Cuco Coco in this um, <laughs> in this scenario, and um, just really trying hard not to burst out laughing, <laughs> trying trying retain some kind of professional integrity here, and he wasn't. Martina wasn't the only one that he got mixed up with because I'm pretty sure he called Seamus Coleman Simon a few times. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, I suppose there's, there's some kind of excuse with Martina who was a bit part player at best. But I mean, Seamus was obviously um, a really important kind of senior squad member as well. He would always get names wrong, Allardyce, and it was so, so hard to keep a straight face. Um, so that, that that reminds me of funnier times, certainly. Um I'll always go back to him having to fill in at left back for Leighton Baines, um, and um, it being a really tough ask for him. I think his best position is obviously right back, and he he was never a, a a Premier League starting quality right back. So to ask him to do it over on the other flank, I think was a, was a really tall order. Another one of those players, managers seem to have these players that they go to time and time again as almost squad fillers. So you think about. Martinez, when he arrived, he brought Alcaraz and Kone and uh, Joel Robles. Kuman brought in Stecklenberg and, and Martina. These these kind of players that follow certain managers around because the managers trust them to be part of a squad dynamic. Again, I don't think any tears will be shed over Kuko Martina leaving. Again, it gets money off the wage bill, and I think that's an important thing for Everton to keep doing just so they can create a more sustainable dynamic in which they go into the next window. Yeah, absolutely. That's got to be, hasn't it, in terms of allowing them to, to do the quality over quantity additions that they need in the summer. Um, I think Brands's drive to strip that wage bill right down um, is, is forming part of this. Uh, and um, so we will see who else goes or comes when uh, the, the sort of transfer window kicks into gear. Well, I think it's about time that Pads managed to maintain consciousness for, for just about long enough. We'll let him crawl out of the sweat box. He's done his sentence. And thank you very much for listening. Please remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss a show. And we'll see you next week to talk about the Leicester game.